Well, <clears throat> let's, let's pray, shall we, as we come to look at, at God's Word. Father, we just thank you for your Word. We thank you that your Word is truth. And Lord, as we just pray that as we read your Word and study your Word, you would show us um, how this might apply to us um, at this time in our, in our history. And uh, pray for your Holy Spirit indeed to draw close now. For Jesus' sake, amen. As uh, Melissa was saying, we are continuing our study of the book of Daniel. And uh, last week we looked at the amazing faith of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and uh, their willingness to put their, um, their lives into God's hands even when faced with a, a fiery furnace. And we saw all the um, the challenges that that um, can apply to us when we face difficult situations, difficult situations, trusting our future into, into God's hands and be willing to take whatever is the consequence. And so we move away from chapter 3, come to chapter 4, and um, Daniel comes back into the, into the, uh, onto the stage, if you like. It's worth pausing for a moment, I think, to consider David's situation, and indeed um, his friends as well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here he was in Babylon, the center of the Babylonian Empire. Um, it was a powerful and uh, merciless empire which had recently taken over the whole of the ancient Near East. And Daniel and his friends, S, M, and A, had been captured by the, the Babylonians when they invaded Judah. And it's believed that Daniel and his friends were in the first group of people to be taken into exile, which is about 605 BC. And uh, some scholars reckon that they were actually sort of quite young, in fact. Uh, they might have even been sort of 12, 13, so they were almost children. Um, but this group of, of, of men, young people, were chosen because of their brightness, their intelligence, and their good looks. And the plan was to train them up to serve in King Nebuchadnezzar's royal palace. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help seeing the, the parables of this biblical story with what's going on in modern-day Ukraine today. Daniel and his friends were exiles. They'd been forcibly removed from, from Jerusalem by an invading empire. And not only taken away from their families, but taken from what was, was completely at the, at the heart of their lives, their surroundings, Jerusalem, and of course, the temple. And that had been desecrated, and many of the treasures pillaged by the Babylonians and taken back to Babylon. And we know that a few years later, the whole temple itself was destroyed, and um, Jerusalem left in ruins. We can think about that through the eyes of Ukrainian people today, 
as they look at those terrible scenes <clears throat> of much of what was familiar to them, their own surroundings, being laid waste by the onslaught of artillery and rockets from Russian forces. And here they are in Babylon. How could their faith survive? Could God possibly be worshipped in this foreign place? There was a strong feeling that God was in his temple. That had now been demolished. Where was God in all this? What would the future hold for them? And in a sense, too, there was nothing to go back to. Again, the thoughts, I believe, of many Ukrainian exiles, those escaping Ukraine at the moment. Will there be anything to go back to? Although most Ukrainians um, have not been captured by the Russians, fortunately, many are starting a new life in exile. And indeed, many may well end up around here. They'll be starting a new life, but with heavy hearts of what is going on in Ukraine. Will they ever be able to go home? Amazingly, Daniel and his friends kept their faith. And as we read in the um, chapter one, God equipped them, gifted them with, with great skills they could and they had understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel was given the gift of interpreting visions and dreams. But, of course, in this foreign land, the culture, the religion, was completely at odds with what Jewish people would have been used to and would have accepted. And yet, God amazingly uses this small group of people to challenge the mighty empire of Babylon. And it all begins with dreams. And it's quite an interesting study to look at all the dreams in the Bible. I'm not going to go through them all by any means, you'll be relieved to know, but it's a very interesting study because dreams were a very important way that God communicated with his people. Indeed, whether they believed in him, or not. And sometimes they were used to provide assurance that God was with people. Um, sometimes they gave those with the dreams particular guidance. And in many cases, too, there were some stern warnings when people needed to take some sort of action. Maybe you yourself have had a dream that you feel God has been speaking to you. Uh, I must admit, I have loads and loads of dreams, um, but I think like Frank, um, they're rather strange sometimes, and I dare to ask anybody for their interpretation. They think I'm a complete nutcase. Um, but it, I think sometimes it, it would be a good discipline just to say to God, Lord, if you're trying to say something through the, my dreams, help me to be um, aware of that. So God is able to communicate with all sorts and through dreams. And no matter how well kings and rulers like Nebuchadnezzar might have been, how well they're, they're guarded by their soldiers and bodyguards, no matter how impregnable their 
fortresses and castles were. Nothing could or can stop God from speaking to them through dreams. And you can almost imagine a scene where King Nebuchadnezzar is preparing to go to bed. And he hears his mother coming to him. Here we are, Nebby. Here's a nice mug of cocoa to help you sleep. For goodness sake, Mum, I have thousands of servants looking after me. Well, they're not doing a very good job, are they? Look at the mess in your room. Last time I came in here, I stood on a porcupine. Oh, for goodness sake, Mother, you mean a concubine. Look, I am the king of Babylon, and indeed one of the biggest empires in the world. I think I could have some treats, don't you think? Well, says his mum, that charming young man, Daniel, has told me about a bad dream you had. So I think you need some little comfort from your mother, rather than all these hundreds of servants. And this cocoa will give you a peaceful, dream-free sleep. Look, Mum, last time you gave me some cocoa, my, my taster drank it and has only just woken up, and that was seven days ago when he first drank it. Well, sorry, sweet pie. I must have gone a little bit over the top with the, the barbiturates. But the rest is made of beautiful, natural ingredients. Drink up, Nebby, and have sweet dreams. Um, slight variation on the biblical story, but could well have been a sort of context that might have been experienced. But as we can see from Daniel 4, either Daniel didn't take the, drink the hot cocoa, or it just didn't work. And King Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And as we read, the visions and images absolutely terrify him. So as before with his first dream, back in chapter 2, he summons magicians, astrologers, enchanters, diviners, all sorts of odd people to interpret the dream, and they are unable to do so. You'd think King Nebuchadnezzar would have learnt something from the first dream, but never mind. And so Daniel, um, who's, as you know from David, is known as Belteshazzar, um, comes to the rec record and, as we know, interprets the dream. Daniel, at this stage, of course, has been promoted to chief of the magicians, um, a, a little bit of reward for interpreting the first dream. And it's clear that the king realises there's something very special about Daniel. And twice in the passage that was read to us, um, the king recognises him as having the spirit of the holy gods in him. And this, no doubt, has given him the power to interpret and make sense of dreams. And so, as we read, um, Daniel offers an interpretation of the dream that um, the king Nebuchadnezzar has experienced, a dream that um, has caused him so much fear Daniel's in a bit, of a, a bit of a sticky situation here, and that's got nothing to do with the cocoa. Um, he's greatly perplexed by this dream, and his thoughts terrify him. 
And I suppose it's a bit like a surgeon looking at the results of an MRI scan and realizing the signs of his patient are not looking good. How will he tell the patient that the pr prognosis is very serious and possibly terminal? Daniel, in a similar position, has a difficult task to perform. How will the king react when he starts to interpret this dream? It's always easiest to bring people good news, isn't it? And I'm sure most of the advisors of King Nebuchadnezzar did that. It was too risky to be too honest. Indeed, King Nebuchadnezzar had the power just to click his fingers and who knows, you'd be looking face to face with a lion or even burning up in a fiery furnace. Interestingly, King Nebuchadnezzar realizes that Daniel is struggling with this situation that he's in. And, uh, and so quite interestingly, King Nebuchadnezzar um, says, look, look, Daniel, don't let this dream of mine uh, or its meaning alarm you. So obviously the king has some inkling there is bad news coming. But once again, there's quite an, another interesting facet of this conversation between the king and the prophet. It seems more that Daniel is concerned about the king rather than what might possibly happen to him. There's almost a sense of compassion in Daniel's voice. I only wish, says Daniel, that the interpretation applied to your enemies rather than to you. It's a surprising comment in many ways, isn't it? Because you'd think that Daniel would not be well averse to um, enjoying the, the, the bad news, if you like, the interpretation uh, was going to reveal to King Nebuchadnezzar. Indeed, he was responsible for so much destruction, if not in Jerusalem and the temple, in other areas of the, of the, of the Near East. He had a lot to answer for. He deserved everything he was going to get, perhaps. And so, in verses 19 to 33, we, we receive the interpretation of Daniel's dream. It might, actually, it might be helpful to have, ah, it's, my goodness me, look at that. Like magic, it flashes onto the screen. And so Daniel tells um, King Nebuchadnezzar that this tree that he's been dreaming about is actually him. You've become great and strong, your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Like a tree, if you like, its roots were spreading out and over, overcoming, over, uh, invading, if you like, um, different parts um, of that part of the world. But a messenger, a holy one from heaven, brings this stark warning, calling in a loud voice, cut down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the birds and animals away, and all that would be left would be a stump and its roots. A pretty scary um, situation to face. 
and worse to come. You'll be driven away from people and will live with wild animals, and you'll eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven seasons, whether that's seven years, we're not sure, but possibly, will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. But it's not all bad news for King Nebuchadnezzar. The stump of the tree and its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge heaven rules. So there is some good news there. So Daniel goes on, please take my advice, renounce your sins by doing right and your kindness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. If we go on a little bit further, um, if you'd like to move us on to verse 29, um, and we see, well, what result does this have on King Nebuchadnezzar? Does he amend his ways? Well, 12 months later, in verse 29, um, we, we read how he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, surveying his kingdom. Is not this the great Babylon I have built? And isn't this a most splendid royal palace? All done by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. And as we read in Daniel, his words were still on his lips when a voice from heaven declaring what Daniel had warned him, that his kingdom would be taken away from him and he would be driven away from, from people, from his people, and would live among the wild animals and eat grass like cattle. It's almost like a little bit from Harry Potter where, uh, I've forgotten who it is, one of the characters takes on the, the, uh, the, the features and characters of a werewolf. Um, it's a thing called lycanthropy. Anyway, read about it on the website. Fascinating stuff. So, clearly, Nebuchadnezzar must have had some complete mental breakdown. Well, this is all fascinating stuff, isn't it? Very interesting. But is there, is this, has this got any relevance or any message for us today? And I believe it does. I mean, although as, as Christians... Um, we are told in a number of places in the New Testament that we should honour and respect the authorities of our country, our leaders, uh, all those put in responsibility. This, this particular chapter of Daniel reminds us very clearly that their power and authority, although it may seem to be incredibly powerful, comes from God. You may remember the conversation between Jesus and Pilate as Pilate was on trial. And Pilate says, don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it had not been given to you from above. For any leader of any country they must realise there is a higher power over them. Their own authority 
is in a sense tentative, temporary, and easily taken away. Vladimir Putin, take note. It is a great challenge, isn't it, for Christians living in a country <coughs> whose government act contrary to the will of God and who exploit, who tyrannise um, their people. Just imagine if you were a Christian working in the Russian government with Vladimir Putin, Putin as the head of state, your boss if you like. How on earth would you manage in this situation? Would you resign and sort of slip away quietly? Would you stay in your post and just grim and bear it? Or would you somehow have the courage to question some of the decisions that he and his um, committees and so on were putting into, into power? A really difficult choice, no easy answer. And yet we see that Daniel and his friends stayed in their posts. Even though their boss, King Nebuchadnezzar, was a despot um, who, as we know, oversaw a very brutal empire built on the extortion and pillage of people and resources throughout that part of the world. Mind you, it might not have been very easy just to walk out of... Um, out of Babylon in their situation. There was something very different about Daniel and his friends and their willingness to stand up for their beliefs, even if it meant death. And it obviously became rather clear to King Nebuchadnezzar that there was something very special about this group, and especially for Daniel. And as we saw earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar just recognised Daniel as someone who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Although we might have some issues about King Nebuchadnezzar's theology, the fact he couldn't really distinguish between his gods and, and uh, the real god, um, it's a sign that God was clearly working in him and using Daniel as his instrument. We know in the Old Testament there were only a few people who were anointed with God's Spirit, and that was often for particular tasks. But Daniel clearly was one of those. As Christians, we can know the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And you may recall Paul writing to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 3.16, saying, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Isn't that amazing that as Christians, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He's the one who equips us to show the love and power of Christ to all. And as the church, we are Christ's body here on earth. He equips the church with spiritual gifts to proclaim his truth in the world. And we might say, well, we're not quite like Daniel. We're not a high flyer 
uh, an incredibly intelligent civil servant working closely with a king. But wherever we are, however humble or whatever our job situation or our living situation might be, God can make a big difference in our lives and to those around us through God's Spirit living in us. Daniel chapter 4 has a remarkable ending. Yes, the interpretation is true. Yes, the dream is fulfilled and King Nebuchadnezzar loses his kingdom and ends up sharing a meal with the oxen, munching through a load of grass. I suppose that might be where they get this expression put out to grass, possibly, but I don't, don't push that one too much. Um, but this humbling experience, when in effect he's experiencing what he no doubt imposed on many, many people in his empire. He now was, if you like, eating humble grass pie. And so in verse 37, he's brought to his senses. Just a little bit similar, isn't it, to the prodigal son, although... And it says in verse 7, Now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This story is a reminder, I think, not to give up praying for situations that seem to be insolvable. Yes, the whole situation in the Ukraine looks absolutely desperate. The forces of the Russian army seem to be almost invincible. Is there any way this powerful empire can be, if you like, stopped in its tracks. And it is a reminder, I believe, that God is very much in control, although maybe not obviously. But I wonder, I wonder what dreams Putin is experiencing at the moment as his mother brings him his hot cup of cocoa. I wonder if he's tossing and turning in his bed as the events occurring in, uh, in the Ukraine uh, occur. So let's keep praying for these difficult situations, even though we may not see an instant result. And let us remind ourselves from this story that God can use each one of us, no matter how small our situation might, might be. He can do amazing things through us because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our lives. Amen.